Welcome to episode 18 of Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs, where we get real about all things that go on below the belt. I'm your host, Jocelyn Conley, pelvic floor physical therapist and founder of the Vagina Doc. And today I'm speaking with Marla Birchfield about what to expect when you're expecting. So moms that are planning to deliver again or prospective moms, you're going to want to listen to this. Marla Birchfield and I go way back to when we were babies and our moms were pregnant together in the hospital. That's where they actually met. She has been a labor and delivery nurse for since 2014, I believe. And she just absolutely amazes me when she explains the whole process of labor and delivery. So I figured that we brought this, we bring this episode back. We shot it in the fall or actually earlier this year, and we weren't really doing many promos at the time. So now that the podcast is, is growing, I think it is a perfect time to relaunch because so many women can value or, or, or benefit from listening to this. We, what you're going to get from this episode is you're going to learn about all the things you should think about preparing to deliver, like what to bring to the hospital, what are your options for pain management, and then things along the lines of recovery. Before we dive into today's episode, remember our disclaimer, the information used on this podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only and should not be used in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome, Marla. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I love doing this. So can you just give us, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are, what you do. Yeah. So my name's Marla again. Um, I've been doing, I've been a labor and delivery nurse for about six years now, almost. I can't believe I'm saying that. That's crazy. Um, I started working in Joshua Tree, California at a small, small community hospital. Um, So it's totally different than what I'm doing now. Um, so I worked there for about two years and I gained invaluable knowledge and experience through all of my coworkers. Um, and now I've been at Jefferson Hospital just south of Pittsburgh for about three years and I love it so much. It's my passion. So I love doing this and anything I can do to help and spread the word. I can't wait. It's awesome. Marla, did you always know that you wanted to get into this or is this something that came about later in life? Um, honestly, when I did my clinical rotation in nursing school, I wasn't sure. I had two totally different um, decisions. I wanted to either be an ICU nurse, so critical care, or I wanted to do labor and delivery, which is completely different. <laughs> but um, so whenever I moved to California, all that was open was labor and delivery. So, and I just so happened to get the job and it was very, very lucky. There was only one hospital in my area to work at. And usually it's so hard to get into labor and delivery right out of nursing school. So I was so excited to do that. And I feel like it was meant to be <laughs> for sure. 
I think it's so crazy that you and I both ended up doing what we're doing. And we never, Marla and I never talked about getting into anything related to women's health growing up. Never. I know. It's so crazy. And now that's all we talk about. (laughs) That's not a bad thing. So Marla, we want to dive right in. We've had some other guests on the podcast. Um, Some have been physical therapists. And from a physical therapy perspective, uh, we usually work with women up until the point that they're going to deliver. But once their water breaks or they go in for an induction or they go in for a plan C-section, there are a few therapists that work in uh, intrapartum or in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Not a ton right now. Hopefully that'll change over the next few years. But I'm hoping that you can shed some light on this time for us, what maybe women can expect in each of those situations. And then any tips you have for women that are coming to the hospital. And I would really like to know if you were packing a hospital bag, what are the <laughs> items that you would want to put in that bag? Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, so my first point is that I think a lot of women have this, they think that everybody's experience is similar or the same. So my first point that I want to make that is that seriously, every single patient's birth experience is completely different from the last. I've never had one patient that is remotely close to the next patient. Everyone's a little bit different. There are so many different routes that they can go. There's just every patient has a huge list of things, such as like if they have um, any medical problems, it can all affect the pregnancy. So um, the way we take care of each patient is different from another patient, for instance. So whenever their water breaks, um, some people, their water breaks, they can have like a little pinpoint Um, and it's just a slow leak of water. So they barely even know that their water's broken. They're like, oh, am I leaking? Am I not leaking? Should I go in? Should I not go in? Um, So we always, at the hospital I work at now, we have a doctor that's on call 24 seven. So we recommend that they call the on-call doctor um, and they can speak to them directly and they help decide whether they need to come in or not. Um, But for another woman, when their water breaks, it might be this huge gush of fluid um, that just continues to leak and leak and leak. And at that, at that point, they know for sure their water's broken and they come right in. Um, so it's just, as far as when their water breaks, they could start contracting at that point. They could not be contracting. They could be contracting for hours before their water breaks. It just kind of depends on the person and how their labor process is going to go. So um, it's important to you know, always be in communication with your doctor too, and they can recommend whether you need to come into the hospital or not. Um, so, yeah. So if they you, go into the hospital, what do uh-huh. you suggest? So I like that question, Jenny. In what do they bring in their bag? Yeah. So the bag, that's a huge question all the time. So we, the hospital typically has all of the necessities like diapers, wipes, Um, We have hospital gowns, obviously. Um, We have everything you need to take care of the baby. We have binkies, everything, formula, all that stuff. If you're going to formula feed or breastfeed, um, we have all of the tools and supplies necessary to take care of your baby. Um, But a lot of the, so I go by hearsay, a lot, I hear a lot of people say that they, a must is chapstick 
which is I never, I don't know why. It's really dry in the hospital. Um, you're there for a long time. You, um, we don't allow our patients to eat once they get an epidural or if they get an epidural. Um, so then you just get parched. You can't really eat. You can only have ice chips. You can, we don't take you, allow you to take big sips of water or anything. Um, so chapstick is huge for people. A lot of people also like to bring their own gown, actually, because it just makes them feel like it's more, a, it's more homey to be in your own clothes. You feel more comfortable, something from home. Um, definitely bring your own pillows because the hospital pillows are very uncomfortable. <laughs> Things I wouldn't um, think of. Huh? Things I wouldn't think of. To, to yeah, think of. yeah, definitely. Um, shower shoes, I would bring those. And then as far as the baby goes, a lot of people bring, I don't know if you guys know what boppies, you know? Yeah. What, yeah. So even if you're not breastfeeding, I actually love whenever people bring those because the baby just sits so cutely in there. So they can actually put them on the edge of their bed, their own bed, and the baby just kind of chills in the poppy. It's so whether it's to help with breastfeeding, but really the baby can just relax in there. Um, and then is so that they don't have to be in the crib the whole time or the bassinet. Um, and then another... So what else? Just comfortable clothes. A lot of people bring in um, the, so say you're being induced, it's just a long process sometimes. So they bring in those Amazon Fire Sticks or a laptop so they can watch movies and TV shows and all of our TVs hook up to the Fire Sticks. So that's pretty nice. Um, and Marla, I don't mean to interrupt you, but can yeah. you, for our audience that may not know, can you tell us what induction is? An induction. So an induction is just a medical term to describe we are promoting labor. So we are starting the labor for you. Um, so there are a ton of different ways to do that, depending on the person. Um, so sometimes, especially for first time moms, it can be a long process because your body's never done that before. So it's just trying to learn what to do. So we're helping it along. How, what does that look like? Can you give one example of how you would induce a new, a first time mom? Yeah. So depending on what their cervical exam is, so how far dilated they are. Um, so you could be close, thick and high, which means your cervix is not dilated whatsoever and not ready for labor. Um, a lot of first time moms, that's where they start, or you can be, you know, one to two centimeters. Typically, like I said, first-time moms, close, thick, and high, so we have to ripe, it's called ripen the cervix to get it ready for labor because it's never done it before, so it is closed and shut off to anything. Um, so a lot of times we'll bring in those patients at 8 p.m. or 10 p.m. actually. We insert a, it's called Cervidil or Cytotec. It's a pill or um, Cervidil is like almost like a little tampon. Um, we stick it up, it's full of medicine, we put it right underneath the cervix, and it kind of releases a slow medication um, to help ripen the cervix to get it ready for contractions. That, that way it's, it's ready to go whenever we need it to be. Um, so it starts to shorten. Once it shortens, um, then we'll be able to start Pitocin, which is another medication. So we would start that in the morning, and then 
get the contractions going. That's what brings the contractions on. They get longer, stronger, closer together. Your cervix starts to dilate. Mm -hmm. It's a long process. It could take 24 to 48 hours for that to complete. Is this a painful process? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> can we, that, that leads me into pain management as being the, a huge topic. Sorry. Louie, Louie off the couch. Um, so pain management is, was a huge topic that you and I discussed. Yeah. Um, when should expecting moms have a plan for their, what they're going to do for pain management when delivery, when labor begins? I think that should they should start talking about that with their provider in their prenatal visits for sure. Um, and how they deal with pain, what their plan is for management, such as there's the new hypnobirthing, which I've been doing a lot of research on. Um, I haven't really seen it much yet, um, but there are a couple of cases where I know were successful mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and then there's an epidural, which is the typical pain management. And a lot of people do, they walk, they, so they don't get the epidural, they can walk, they can get in a tub, they can bounce on a ball, different types of, there's so many different ways to help with pain. However, um, the contractions do get really bad for some people. So it's important to have a, plan, a game plan as to how you wanna tackle, um, how you manage your pain. So, cause a lot, there's a lot of people that come in and they're like, I do not want an epidural. I'm closed off to it. I don't even want to talk about it. Um, but then, you know, they're five centimeters and contracting away and their water's broken and they're like, I, I need, I need the epidural. But, you know, they don't really know anything about it at that point because they were so closed off to it before. So I think it's huge to have an open mind about all of your different options to be discussing those with your provider in your prenatal care visits. Um, to ensure that you have the best plan for specific for you. Is there a point of no return? At, so you're dilated in a face to a certain amount and you just can't have an epidural after that? So that is different at every facility. Um, my hospital, I, tr I take pride in our anesthesia team. They do an awesome job at we will put an epidural in anybody unless that baby is coming out literally. So you, there is no point of no return unless the baby is physically being delivered, um, <laughs> which is great. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I do want to back up for a second. Yeah. You talked about, or rather you talked about dilation. And I think we hear that a lot in mainstream media. Yeah. Dilation's one of two things that have to happen during delivery, correct? So one of three things, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So when we describe a um, cervical exam, we'll say she's, for instance, this is just an example. She's two centimeters dilated, but she's 90% of face and the baby's at minus three station. Um, so the station, each part just deals with um, the way the baby's coming down and dilating the cervix. So as, so if your cervix is, closed but this is the baby's head and it's coming through it's going to open right 
So that's how we, and the baby comes through. So that's how we kind of describe, you have, your cervix has to, it starts out this thick, has to thin out. Um, so effacement is the thinning of the cervix. The, yes, the effacement is the thinning. So like the centimeters is dilation, effacement is the thinning of the cervix, and then the station is described as minus three, minus two, minus one, zero, in comparison to where the baby is to the pelvis. Okay, and once you're past zero, the baby's head is coming out, correct? Um, once you're past zero, it actually goes plus one, plus two, plus three. So then the baby, so it takes a while for that baby to come down, for sure. Um, so once you're at plus three, the baby's head is pretty much coming out at that point, crowning, which is the exciting part. <laughs> what about when the baby comes really quickly? What do you do? Is that a good thing or is that something? Because, you know, I, we, as, a, as a pelvic floor PT, we ask about delivery and they're like, oh, it went well. It was so fast. Okay, so that, well, it, it can be. It can be good. It can be bad. So that's indeterminate of how well your pain is being managed. Okay. So if your pain is not managed and the baby just, I use the term, blow through, <laughs> then um, you can do actually a lot of damage okay, to... Blow out? Yeah, blow out. <laughs> you can, it's literally a blowout. So you can do a ton of damage to your surrounding tissues. Um, it's a harder recovery. So that's why it's so important to be able to manage your pain and work through it. Some women do excellent at working through it by themselves. They can kind of manage their own pain. They don't need an epidural. Some women that does not work for, depends on your pain skill and how well you're able to talk yourself down yeah. <laughs> at so that point. That I think is really important for our listeners to hear. And Marla, if you hear anything about this in the hospital, I'd love for you to comment. But some women think that it's shameful to get an epidural or they're not strong if they get an epidural. And that's just not true because right. like you said, everybody's experience is different. And just because your experience is different doesn't mean that you're having less of a birth or you're less of a woman or less of a mom. So do you ever hear people in the hospital say those kinds of things? All the time. And we're like, Girl, I would get an epidural the moment I walked in this hospital. It's just, in, in our opinion, you're more no, if you're more knowledgeable about yourself and you know yourself and how you're going to manage yourself, that's the most powerful. So whether that is being getting an epidural or not getting an epidural or however you're going to manage your labor and your birth, birth experience, um, if you have a game plan and you know yourself, that's when you're the most powerful. It is not shameful to get an epidural. Really, those women do excellent. They have little tearing because their pain is so well managed and they're truthful with themselves. I, I wouldn't be able to handle that pain, nor do I want to. That doesn't make you any less of a mom. It's, I mean, it's all the same thing. The end result is a baby and you're a mom at the end. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break to tell you about a really cool group that we have available. It's called the Pelvic Health Education for Female Athletes and Active Women. It's a private Facebook group where myself provide free trainings on all things pelvic health. And I don't want to spoil the surprise, but I have a really cool challenge coming up. And 
only the people on the Facebook group are going to get first access, which will be at a the lowest rate. It will never be that low. So if you're interested in hearing more about the challenge and getting all the updates, if you're interested in learning about how you can reach peak fitness without worrying about peeing your pants, if you want to learn about how your sex life can improve, then you're going to want to join the group. I will include the show, the link to the group in the show notes. And as long as you have a Facebook account, you can join. Now let's get back to the show. And Marla, you mentioned something earlier too. When you have an epidural, you do lose the ability to walk around and use some of the other strategies that you mentioned, correct? You, did you say you lose them? Yes, you do lose them. Um, so when you get an epidural, you can't move from the bed at that point. And you do have to get, depending on the facility, some um, straight calf to empty the bladder. So they stick a catheter through the urethra and empty the bladder that way. They put place a Foley catheter, which is what um, my facility does. So the catheter is placed into the bladder and it stays in there and it drains the bladder, but they're numb at that point. So they, we wait till they're nice and numb. They don't feel it going in. They don't feel it in um, if it stays in. So there are definitely, there's some disadvantages to getting the epidural. You can't move at that point out of the bed. Um, but, you know, if you have a, an interactive labor nurse who's constantly flipping you and changing your positions, it helps keep things, which most of us do, it helps keep things interactive and just make sure that a huge part of the labor process is changing positions to help the baby um, with their descent. <laughs> so that's really what a good labor nurse should be doing if your patient has an epidural and is unable to do that on their own. How often should women expect their nurses to be interacting with them and flipping them or moving them? Um, so typically when I admit a patient, this is kind of what I like to say, um, because I, I'll tell them, I'm going to be in here flipping you like a pancake, back and forth and back and forth, because there's a couple reasons why we want to do that. Um, it, one of the reasons is to help, it helps dilation, it helps the baby descend into the pelvis, it helps everything move along, along nicely. Second reason, which is the more scary reason that I like to forewarn everybody, is that it, you know, if the baby's heart rate drops, which is typical for that to happen a few times during the labor process. Um, just because their head's getting squeezed, the cord could be squeezed, any of those reasons could um, make the heart rate drop. We change their position a lot in that instance. We may put oxygen on, we may give them extra fluids um, through their IV catheter. And um, so that can look a little bit scary to people when a ton of people come in the room, workers come in the room and we're putting oxygen on you and we're flipping you back and forth. So um, I would say you get flipped a lot during the labor process, dependent on, uh, almost to the point where it's annoying, <laughs> dependent on how the process is going. So if there's crickets and you haven't seen anyone in a long time, then it's probably time to ring a call light and get somebody to come in there. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Unless they're super comfortable in that position, which a lot of people get 
So the epidurals work by gravity. So say you're laying on your right side, the more the medication is going to fall to the right side. So that side gets super numb and your left side doesn't get a lot of that medication. So then we like to flip you in that sense as well because it evens it out. Um, so a lot of times they'll call it anyway and say my left side or whatever side they're not laying on is starting. I'm starting to feel contractions on that side. I'm like, okay, well, it's time to come flip you anyway. And um, so that way it kind of evens the medication out so that it's, they're nice and numb all over. So Marla, let's say we either had an epidural or we didn't have an epidural. The labor and delivery happened, there's the baby, um, and now there's mom. So talk to us about some things that are normal to expect after delivery okay. and some things that would be a little more concerning, maybe not necessarily emergencies in the hospital, but you're home for two weeks and you notice X, Y, or Z. What would those things be that should elicit a call to the doctor? Okay, so um, I think I definitely wanted to mention this because I always have so many patients that are so surprised by this happening. So we call it the labor shakes. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, but typically when they're about to deliver and even up to four hours after delivery, they shake uncontrollably. It's, it's like, and almost every patient does it. They, sh they shake uncontrollably, they hate it, they can't we always tell them don't fight it because it's just going to make it worse. Um, it's a really annoying thing for them at first. And they're like, no one ever said, mentioned this to me, but they definitely shake uncontrollably for right before they're about to deliver. And then up to four hours after the delivery. So at that point, a lot of times I give warm blankets, even though they're not cold, it's just a hormonal change. Um, and I feel like the warm blankets kind of help calm a little bit so if they don't have those they can ask the patient can ask for them i think it's a good idea if their nurse doesn't give it to them um and then so that's definitely to be expected that a lot of people do not know about are is the shaking part of it that's super apparent for them and it's almost they can't focus on anything else at that point um and then a lot of times you know Another normal thing is if you tear a little bit, um, they repair, the doctor will be repairing. So they have to deliver the placenta and then they will repair um, the tearing. Uh, so that's all normal. A little bit of bleeding is normal. And then if there's extra, so if there's more bleeding than what we anticipated, then we start this protocol. Um, so we would be giving extra medications at that point, like a couple shots in the legs. Um, we give stuff through their IV just to kind of help stop the bleeding. So that happens pretty often. So it's good to not get too concerned with it. Um, they would know and not feel well if they're, they're losing too much blood at that point. And at that point, somebody should be talking to them and telling them that they're losing too much blood. We have to, you know, we have to do what we have to do to stop it at this point. Um, but that's kind of, you know, I've seen it often because I've been doing this a while, but it's kind of rare for that to happen. There are so many different things that we can do to stop the bleeding. So it's rare for it to continue, even though we're doing all of these measures to stop it in that early phase. Um, and then what, what was your last question? After, oh, concerning things after they go home, right? Got it. Yeah. Okay. So after they go home, we always, you know, our typical discharge instructions are 
bleeding, like if they're passing clots, a golf ball size or larger, that is concerning. If they develop a fever, um, if they have any new abdominal pain, if their bleeding is getting worse, it should be getting lighter and better, um, but it's typical to bleed for a couple of weeks after. It just should not be getting worse than it was. Um, so any of those things definitely warrant a call to the doctor. So that just to make sure that everything's okay, um, you don't wanna be bleeding a lot at home. That's kind of scary. How sure. much swelling, how should someone, what should a, a mom expect in terms of the amount of swelling in the perineum oh. area immediately and then let's say two weeks after? Well, it, that's hard, a little bit harder for me to answer for two weeks after because I don't, you know, I'm in the delivery process yet, so I don't really see them after they leave the hospital. However, afterwards, so swelling honestly everywhere <laughs> so in the perineal area for sure that happens right away not before the baby even comes out honestly and um, the perineal area is just that space between the vagina and the anus correct correct yep correct so that swells dramatically and the labia swell dramatically um so if i kind of switch out ice packs a lot and I would that would be a tip I would give everyone is to definitely keep on it with the ice packs that's going to help tremendously with swelling it does wonders better than anything else honestly um, and then I like to warn people too because we have a lot of fluids in the hospital for different reasons um, that their feet and their legs will be extremely swollen um, afterwards and after they go home for weeks so that's just a warning that I like to give. Not always, but it does happen to where it doesn't go away. <laughs> it's the last thing to go to fix. Do you recommend compression hose in those patients? We don't, but they can use them if they want to use them. We just recommend definitely move, getting up and walking put, and then re resting, putting your feet up, um, staying active, but also when you are resting, make sure your feet are above heart level that way. It can kind of help the swelling because it gets a little intense. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about the first pee after delivery. <laughs> yeah, everyone's so scared about that. Um, so it's honestly different for everybody. I kind of have, I have, I would say 50-50, I have people that say, oh my gosh, that didn't hurt at all. I was so scared for nothing, um, especially with the first pee and poop everyone's terrified because of what they heard on the internet or from other moms. Um, so I would say 50% of people are, they say it didn't hurt at all. It's fine. This was great. And then the other 50% of people, it really hurts them. Um, and typically we try to get everyone to pee um, two hours after, within two hours after delivery to kind of empty their bladder. Um, and we give a numbing spray, which I think that's across the board. Every hospital gives it. It's called benzocaine. It's a spray, and we spray it on. Um, that way, when they pee, they, it kind of numbs the area, so it helps that as well. Um, and then, you know, a big thing with pooping, especially, is a lot of people get hemorrhoids afterwards. Um, so we give the little tux pads to kind of put up there on the hemorrhoids. Those work wonders for people, for sure. So I recommend those too. <laughs> Great. So it sounds like maybe tuck pads and some ice packs or 
Um, you, there's a lot of ice pads out there. Vagicool is one yes. that I really like a lot to put those in the bag as well. Yeah, so yeah, you can definitely put those bag. in. Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, even if you want to save that for home and then use our stuff while you're in the hospital and save all of your supplies, it's good to have that stuff at home for sure to follow up with afterwards. We'll send you home with some, but, you know, that way you're fully stocked and ready. <laughs> you know, a lot of the focus after delivery is on the baby, but really the moms need a lot of attention too. They're going for a huge life change afterwards, so, and body you know, just pushed out of watermelon. <laughs> that makes me think of the episode of The Office where Dwight is trying to stimulate the labor and yeah. I love that episode. Like petroleum jelly on the watermelon or something. Right. <laughs> I digress. I'm sorry. I'm a big Office fan. Me too. Oh yeah. So that's so funny. Great. Well. I guess one of the last questions I have for you is what do you guys use to determine that a new mom and her baby are ready to leave the hospital? Yeah, so um, we just like to make sure there are a couple of things. Obviously, we want to make sure both of them are medically stable um, and that they're right, medically can be cleared from the hospital. And secondly, especially with first time moms, they're the postpartum phase, there's so much education that needs to be done. We want to make sure you're feeding okay, whether that be formula or breastfeeding, and you have the resources you need to go home to where you can reach out to um, for help with those things. Um, what to look out for, like kind of like we talked about um, for mom and baby to make sure that they know to go come into the hospital and to the ER to call the doctor if they need to, if any of the warning signs appear. Um, and then just general how to care for the baby. First bath, that kind of thing. We, we kind of teach them how to give a bath. Stuff about head control because now, you know, back to sleep. Make sure they have a safe space for the baby to sleep. They have all the supplies they need at home. It's definitely um, a lot of work between the hospital employees, like social work. Um, there's just so many people that hearing screens, everything that needs to be taken care of before the baby and the mom go home. So just as long as everyone feels like they're ready to go, we send them home. Um, and also coordinating with their insurance too. Um, Cause you know, <laughs> insurance. we won't go into that. No. <laughs> oh gosh. I know. Well, Mar, uh, we appreciate you coming on and giving oh, yeah. us your time. I know that, I have about a million other things that I want to ask you, but <laughs> I know um, there's so much. I feel like I jump everywhere, but there's just, I'm very passionate and there's so much to teach for sure. Yes. So we definitely would love to have you on again after the new year. Excellent. All right, Marlo. Well, thank you so much. And we look forward to hearing from you in the new year. Thank you guys so much. Nice to meet you, Jenny. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs with Marla Birchfield. If you want to know more about Marla and what she does, you can follow her on Instagram at M-E Birchfield. If you want to know more about the podcast, 
follow us on Instagram at pelvic docs podcast. That's where we're going to post the latest and greatest about the podcast, including extras, previews, and pieces of the podcast that we may not have put on here. And then one more thing, you guys, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening app. It really helps the the show and it's a way to get the word out. If there's something that you want to want to hear about, please send us a message uh, either on Instagram or through iTunes or Spotify. And then join us next week for another episode. We launch every Sunday morning. Thank you guys. And we'll see you again next time.